thank you so much. Right, we're into this theme of uh, multiplication then, and uh, my real aim this morning is to encourage you. Now, I will be saying one or two quite serious things, you'll realize that as I go through, but uh, my heart and prayer for what I'm going to share with you is that will be a real message of encouragement to you. Now, I think when we talk about multiplication within uh, church life, uh, gathered as we are as a local church, that inevitably we think of numbers of people. And certainly that's in the Bible. So let me just very quickly remind you of how that's there in Scripture. This is not my main message, this is just the introduction, but I want to make it clear that you can see multiplication of numbers in the Bible very easily. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, uh, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase and uh, uh, fill the earth. So that's called a multiplication that's intended there. And then if you go to uh, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 15, um, God is talking to Abraham and uh, he says to Abraham, the number of your descendants will be more than the stars that you can count in the sky. So again, that's multiplication. If you come into the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see that numbers of Believers are constantly multiplying. Day of Pentecost, 3,000, then it goes to another 5,000, and the numbers keep rolling in, and even churches begin to multiply. Until you come to the end of the Bible, and in Revelation chapter 7, uh, the number of believers throughout history has multiplied to a number which is actually too great for any of us to count. So, all that's there in the Bible, but I'm not going to speak about that aspect, which is what you might have expected, but what I'm actually going to speak about is the fact that the Bible also tells us of multiplied blessings. And I'm going to take you to a verse in John chapter 1 and verse 16, and this is going to be a message, as I say, of encouragement, I hope, and exhortation rather than a standard sort of exegesis that I would tend to do normally. Uh, it's a Saturday morning, not a Sunday morning, so I feel I can get away with this. And so in John chapter 1 and verse 16, we read that out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And that is such a, a rich phrase that's used here that the translations tend to put it slightly differently, trying to bring out the fullness and the richness of it. So out of his fullness, we have all received grace in a place of grace already given. Others say grace upon grace. Other translation puts it, we have received one blessing after another. And so I'm calling this message really one blessing after another. And what I want to, want, want to do in the next through, uh, few minutes is to take you through six blessings that have been multiplied into our lives. These are blessings that belong to us as believers. And please notice that uh, these blessings come out of God's fullness. It's very clear there in verse 16. Out of His fullness, we've all received one blessing after another. It is though God has a great storehouse of infinite worth, and out of that storehouse, He's bringing one blessing after another, grace upon grace, grace to replace the grace already been given. So we're going to talk about these blessings, just a handful of them out of the many blessings that are ours. Revelation, life, truth, sovereignty, resurrection, and hope. 
So let me begin with revelation, because this is an absolutely key blessing that God has put into our lives. And I know that because of what I read in Ephesians chapter 1, the very same chapter that Steve was reading from just a few moments ago. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and from verse 17, we read this expression of the Apostle Paul. And he, he says that, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Now notice this, in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us or in us who believe. And every Christian has received that revelation to some degree. All of us here know by the revelation of God that we've got a hope, uh, that we've got an inheritance laid up for us, and that there is some resurrection power at work within us. All of us will have that revelation to some degree, but we are easily distracted. And... uh, I don't know, money, the beach, sport, you name it. I've been in a whole number of churches in my life and ministry, and I have never known a church in which there aren't some people who get distracted. And I wonder if that was true even in the time of the Apostle Paul, that he was aware that some people would get distracted. And so Paul says, what I therefore do is pray for you, and he's praying for a local church, I pray for you that you will know him better, that you will get increased revelation. Now let me put it a slightly different way. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, I'm sure that many of you would immediately say, well, it means to follow Jesus. And possibly you'd even go to Matthew 16, 24, which is a key verse. Whoever wants to be my disciple, says Jesus, must deny themselves to take up the cross and follow me. Now, taking up your cross, let us be clear here. This doesn't mean that you have to put up with your arthritis or your mother-in-law. Uh, my sympathy if it's either, but that's that's not what it's about. When a man took up a cross, he went out to die. And Jesus, of course, did exactly that. He took up his cross and went out to die. Discipleship is following Jesus. Now, we've got to be practical. We're not going to literally take up a cross and go out to die. You've got to make it practical. So Jesus makes it practical. He says a man must deny himself, take up his cross. And so Jesus says it's a matter of denying ourselves in some way. And to be honest, that's not very palatable today. I mean, it wouldn't be at all palatable to think of taking up a literal cross. And it's not very palatable to think in these days uh, of denying ourselves. So let me break it down further. I believe it means this. We need to deny ourselves the distractions that would cause us not to see Christ as the greatest attraction. Uh, 
you say, well, things are attractive, and many things are attractive in this world, and that, that's fine. We can, we can follow some attractions. I'm not saying that we should uh, give up on everything in some way and uh, deny ourselves to a point of kind of, we never think of anything, we never enjoy anything. That's not what I'm saying at all. But is Jesus the greatest attraction? And that's why, my friends, I want to emphasize this as the first grace, the first blessing that comes to us, because I believe that if we enjoy the grace of revelation, that is what is going to produce awestruck disciples. And it's not a question of saying, oh, I've got to give up all these things. I've got to stop doing this and stop doing that. I've got Jesus as my focus. And in Jesus, what I've got is an eternal hope. And in Jesus, what I've got is an inheritance which is awaiting for me. And what I've got is a measure of resurrection power already at work in my life that will serve me through eternity. And if we get that revelation, and if that revelation increases in us, then it makes all the denial worthwhile. So what I'm suggesting that we do is that we join with Paul in his prayer that we'll know him better. That we'll get increased revelation of what is ours in Christ. And that will be true for ourselves and for our church. This blessing of revelation. Now the second blessing is life. And so I'm going to keep piling these blessings on. And here's another blessing uh, to pile on. Life, which means essentially, well, here we are. Right, we've got life. I wonder, do you ever really revel in the fact that you have life? I love the way the Bible would speak in such a way as to make us do this. So in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And you come into the New Testament, that gets repeated for us. So you'll find both in Romans 8 and in Ephesians 1, and you can check it out, it says there that before we were even formed, God knew us. And this means that our life is God-given, because God foreknew us. You see, what was God doing in eternity before he created anything? And eternity goes on for a very long time. And so God has always been in existence. And then at some point, he created time and he created the universe. But what was God doing in eternity before he brought anything into existence? The amazing record of the scripture is this. He was thinking about you and me. He was thinking about our lives and about our existence. And then when we find that people today are constantly talking about the importance of significance, I can think of nothing more significant than being known by the eternal God even before I was created and born. And then at some point, God formed us in our mother's wombs and he saw our life and suddenly here we are, formed, every breath we breathe given by God, the promise of abundant life, which I haven't got time to unwrap here this morning, the promise of an inheritance that is yet to come, you and I, we have life. And I want to stress this because right now we live in a culture that sometimes tends to lean heavily away from life. Now there was an advert that came up from the Democratic Party in America a few months ago. 
And this advert simply said this, guns are the number one killer in America, enough is enough. And we can understand that. I mean, we regularly hear, don't we, from America about the latest massacre that has taken place. It was Baltimore just the other day. It wasn't 28 shot, two people killed. It goes on like that day in, day out in America. It's a kind of death cult over there. What is it about America and guns? But actually, that advert is not correct. Guns are the number one killer in America. That's not correct. What do you think is? Yes. In 2021, 900 people per week were shot dead in America. 47,000 people in the course of 2021. But in the year before, 1,700 children were aborted every day in America. That's 620,000. And here in the United Kingdom, 214,000. Our culture is killing our children and getting used to it. And let's face it, mainly that happens for convenience, in the sense that there is an inconvenient pregnancy. Now let me just be careful here. I want to be pastorally sensitive about this. You, you get a 14-year-old girl that gets raped and pregnant and says, I can't carry this child. I'm not going to be pastorally insensitive about that. And, but I'm talking about what regularly happens in our culture at the present time. And all that happens because it's an inconvenient pregnancy. You may be aware that right, back, uh, right now in America, there's some kickback on this taking place right at the present time. But at the same time, there's a kickback. There are some states in America that want to legalize abortion right up to the moment of birth. And we have pressure groups in this country that want to get our parliament to pass legislation to do that as well. Now, there's a strange contradiction here because even our culture knows that life is precious. You think if a murder takes place and the resources that are poured into solving that murder, the, the number of policemen that can be involved, the investigation, it can cost multi-million pounds because our society says life is precious. And then even more strangely, you can have a situation where there is a highly premature birth, and because that baby is wanted, the resources and the money and the medical skill that goes into saving that precious life, which is a kind of extraordinary contradiction in the culture we live. But my friends, I want to turn this to an understanding of the blessing that we have to recognize we have the blessing of life. It is God-given Every life is precious. And we who are believers are foreknown by the living God. We've been wired together by God in the womb. We have an abundant life that can open up for us in Christ, and we have yet a great inheritance which is to come. A blessing of being in Christ is so we can celebrate life. We know God. And here we are to worship him. It's the blessing of life. Let me next take you to the blessing of truth. So pile in another blessing. And this blessing is truth. Now, I wonder if you've heard this saying, which is quite common these days, there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is probably the most rubbish statement that's ever been made because that in itself then becomes the absolute truth. 
So it's a crazy thing to say. Amid, amid all the philosophies, amid all the noise, all the voices, all the cacophony that's going on around in our culture and society today, here's grace for us, and the blessing that comes next in this list of blessings I'm giving to you is truth. And Jesus said it. He said, I am the truth. And that statement towers above every other claim to know the truth. And the interesting thing here is in John chapter 1 that grace and truth are linked. We read in this very chapter that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God has apprehended us in Christ and we found the truth. And the truth, we are told, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And I'll tell you this, but it will also get you into trouble. Uh, I'm sure you've often heard uh, preachers talk about what happened in the early church, that uh, it was required of the, the citizens of the whole Roman Empire, Christians of course included, to go to a pagan temple from time to time and to sprinkle in a sacrif- uh, into a sacrificial flame some incense and to say Caesar is God, to say Caesar is Lord and to worship him as a god. And you were given what was called a libellus, signed by a magistrate with your name on. And once you had that, it said that you had offered uh, incense to Caesar uh, as lord, and that you were a true loyal citizen of the Roman Empire. Christians were in trouble. Why were they in trouble? Because it wasn't true. Jesus is lord, not Caesar. And I reflect on this into what we're facing today, and I think we can have a common view around amongst us, well, probably people are very much set against the church today. I'm not sure that most people are actively against the church. I don't think they really care about the church. I don't think they're bothered about us too much. I mean, they, they probably think, well, if you want to go and sing your funny little songs and say your funny little prayers, well, you get on with it. That's, that's fine. It doesn't bother us. But they do require something of us, brothers and sisters, And this is something we need to note in our culture today. What they require of us is an acknowledgement of their God, which today is almost always their view on sexuality. And they want us to give our support to that which is not true. Now, I could take this in all sorts of directions. I follow this stuff quite closely. Um, And there's all sorts of ways I could enlarge upon this. But I'm going to give you just one very simple example which will make the point that I want to get across to you here in a very straightforward way. Uh, I don't know if some of you have picked this up, but about a week or so ago, there was a beauty contest in in Holland. It was uh, uh, the kind of national beauty contest. I mean, do we still have that here? Do we have a Miss UK or a Miss Great Britain? Maybe we do, but uh, in Holland, they call her Miss Netherlands, right? Because that's, you know, another word for, for Holland. And so a week or so back, they had this beauty contest, and Miss Netherlands 2023 was won by a man. Now, <laughs> did you hear that? This is Miss Netherlands 2023. It was won by a man. And he was wearing a woman's dress and had some makeup on, but he was a man. Now, this is a Dutch commentator. And I'm not say, saying that this person is even a Christian. I don't know. But this is a Dutch commentator commenting on this. And he, she says, it was a woman, and she says this. Considering the fact that we live in a post 
truth world. I wouldn't expect anything else. It's all so predictable and unoriginal. Doesn't that just say it? We live in a post-truth world. Two very famous preachers in America, I recently heard preaching say this, they're coming for us. And there's a conviction around among some thinkers today that increasingly the pressure is going to come upon us to say things and to support things and to confess things that simply are not true. The pressure is going to be upon us this, for this, to say things that we know in our heart is not true. Now, I want us to again turn this to a blessing and see that truth is a blessing for us. That we have come to the truth because Jesus is the truth. And our view of everything is conditioned by the fact that we know Jesus and even our views on sexuality is conditioned by the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Once it was Caesar is Lord. That wasn't true. And so the early Christians were in problems. For us now, it's you must conform to this modern view of sexuality, but it's not true. Jesus is Lord, and I'm not saying it through gritted teeth. I'm in Christ. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. I'm in the truth, and I will celebrate that. Now, the fourth blessing that uh, I'd like to mention to you is that of sovereignty. So we pile on another blessing. We've got revelation, we've got life, we've got truth, but now I want to take you to sovereignty. Now, I wonder if you've ever been in a position where you have become very frustrated because you can see absolutely no explanation or reason, reason for something that's happened. You get very frustrated uh, about this. I had a, an example of this a few years ago in the south of France. And Sue and I were on holiday, and uh, we are suckers for hot springs. Now, apart from in Bath, you don't get that in this country, but uh, you do get quite a lot of those in, in France. And we discovered that we were near a public swimming pool that was fed by hot spring water. So we thought, yes. So we go along there, and uh, it's just like a public swimming pool. We go in, we pay our money, and we go into our, our changing rooms. And I need to explain this to you. Uh, I got changed into my swimming costume. Now, my swimming costume is what a lot of men wear today. It's like shorts. You know, it probably comes down to about here. It's modest, uh, like a pair of shorts. It does the job, and so that was fine. So... I put my swimming costume on and I, I walk out into the swimming pool and immediately in front of me there's a lifeguard and he goes, no! <laughs> no! So I have to get my wife involved because uh, she speaks in French and then a conversation ensues which eventually brings in the manager of the swimming pool as well and they say, these are not regulation swimming costume, I cannot wear these in this pool. And so my, we're saying... Uh, yeah, hey, we paid our money, we're from England, you know, we paid money, we've, it's a perfectly decent pair of swimming trunks. What in, the, uh, in the end, he goes off to the shop, which is in the swimming pool, and he brings back a swimming costume, he gives it to me and says, you can wear that, and then you can get in the pool. So I go back into the uh, change room. Now, I have to say, these swim this swimming costume they gave to me, it was brief. <laughs> <laughs> And frankly, also a bit tight. Uh, anyway, I, 
I get into this swimming costume, you see, and rather embarrassedly, I come again out into the swimming pool to be confronted again by the guy who's the lifeguard. And he looks at me, and in a voice that rippled right round the whole swimming pool, he said, Magnifique! <laughs> now, there is no photographic record of this, you'll be glad to know, but this is, this is what happened. So, you can imagine, in the following days, I mean, I was grumbling all the time. I said, oh, what stupid lot, you know, I mean, really. <laughs> I mean, it's perfectly decent swimming costume, you know, far more modest than, you know, I'm made to wear that stupidly. I mean, what I'm thinking of, there's obviously no explanation for that at all. It's just ridiculous. So I got very unpleasant about the French. Anyway, <laughs> a few days later, we go and stay with friends uh, that we know well that live in France. And of course, I pour out my story. Oh, says the wife. Oh, there's a good explanation for that. She said, uh, uh, if you were wearing swimming costumes like uh, shorts, uh, you might have worn them outside before you came into the swimming pool. You might have picked up viruses and germs and brought them into the swimming pool, and then everybody would have got infected. And I thought, oh, whatever you think of the logic of that, at least it's a reasonable explanation. <laughs> Let me tell you something about the sovereignty of God. We may not... <laughs> We may not yet understand the reason, but there is one. <laughs> and it's important that we get hold of this grace, this blessing, because the sovereignty of God saves us from frustration and even misery. My friends, whatever happens, God is on the throne. Yeah. I often say in connection with Revelation chapter 4 that John looked up into an open heaven and he saw someone seated on the throne. And he gets this vision of the living God, and he looks up and sees this vision of the living God before he's going to be shown all the terrible things that are going to take place on the earth, which are demonstrated in the opening of the seals and the trumpets and, the, uh, and uh, uh, some other thing that I can't remember at the moment. Trumpets, uh, seals, and bowls of wrath. And uh, all these uh, things are demonstrated uh, as to what is going to happen upon the earth. And before John is shown that, He's shown the living God seated upon the throne. And I've often said my, our trouble is we tend to look down at our circumstances and what's happening around us rather than looking up at the living God who's seated on the throne. And we need this blessing of the sovereignty of God, that God is on the throne and that God is in charge and that God rules over time and history because, my friends, life is so jolly unfair. And that's how we see it. I remember this coming home to me very vividly years ago when I was in Cape Town in South Africa. And I had a long history with uh, Jubilee Church in Cape Town, South Africa. And in some of the earlier years that we used to visit there, they had real problems in, in terms of their buildings. And eventually they managed to get hold of a, a, an old warehouse, they renovated it, and they got this super new church complex to meeting. So, of course, when they'd uh, done all the work, they had opening services and people came in from all around to celebrate with them. And uh, uh, just down the road, literally just down the road, left over from the apartheid era as what is often referred to as black townships in which all sorts, up to a million people, are living in one of the local townships there in poverty and with joblessness, and there are pastors there working hard to try and build churches in that very impoverished community. And some of these pastors had come into the meeting, and so there they were in Jubilee, and the Jubilee was naturally celebrating and naturally saying, God has so blessed us with this building, 
And these pastors were saying, then why hasn't God blessed us? And it was a very telling thing for me to actually hear them say that. Jubilee's been blessed. Why not us? Not fair. I think of that with our own building at the moment. Do you know there's a church in Wimbledon, a New Frontiers church that had its building pulled down by the local authority and they built them a super new building. All the facilities there for free. We got a million pound debt. And I know a church in Norwich, another New Frontiers church, has always been giving buildings for free. We had to fight for ours and we got the debt. It's not fair. But let me tell you this, my friends, God's on the throne. (laughs) And in your life, you can look at other people and say, it's not fair, but there is a sovereign God. Otherwise, it all becomes just luck and fate. No, it's not. God is on the throne. Now, I want to try and make three very quick positive comments here to help you with this. First is this. When you think life is unfair, you look at them and you compare yourself to them and think it's not fair. But I tell you this, you would not want to change everything in your life for everything in their life because there's a hell in everybody's life and you wouldn't want their hell. The next thing is the most famous verse on sovereignty is probably Romans 8.28. And I'd just like to uh, make a very brief comment on this. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So I'm going to read it in my version, and I want you to listen carefully to this NIV translation. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And even though I've caused your attention to it, what is probably in your mind is this, all things work together for good. And that's the A.V. King James translation, and it's a correct translation because the Greek is somewhat ambiguous. And the NIV translation is also correct, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. My problem with the authorized version is this. It's not what was intended by the translators, but when we hit problems and difficulties, it's very easy to say, well, all things work together for good. As though a kind of in a random haphazard, willy-nilly fashion, just everything's okay, everything works together for good, don't worry about it kind of thing. All things work together for good. But I don't think that all things just work together for good in a kind of random, willy-nilly way. I think the NIV brings it out more helpfully for us when it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him and who accord according to his purpose. In other words, in whatever happens to us, God, if we love him, is able to bring good out of it for our good. And I think that's the way to understand that verse. And the third thing I would say, let's be very careful that we don't shrink everything in our thinking. Uh, There's a verse in 1 Samuel 14, 6. I mentioned this uh, some months ago at uh, a meeting that we had at, at Gateway. But uh, Jonathan, son of Saul, is going to approach a Philistine uh, uh, citadel and he's got his armor bearer with him. And that's all that there are. It's just Jonathan and this armor bearer. And uh, they need a breakthrough militarily. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer kind of approach this citadel. And this is what, what uh, Jonathan says. He says, perhaps God will work for us. And I love that because it shows faith in God, but it's not arrogant. Perhaps God will work for us. 
God is able to save by few or by many. Perhaps God will work for us. And they go up and they take the citadel, which is a great victory for the nation of Israel. My friends, you may be in a rotten situation at the present time. You don't want to be arrogant, but you don't want to shrink your thinking and just say it's all unfair because perhaps God will work for you. And I think as a local church, we need to have that attitude as well. Not that we're all gung-ho, everything's wonderful, superb, everything's going fantastically, when we know that not everything is going fantastically. But we don't want to shrink it down to the fact, oh, it's all difficult and hard and what's going to happen. Hey, we have a God who is a sovereign God and maybe God's going to work for us. And we need to have that confidence without being arrogant. My friends, we've been given the blessing of sovereignty. There is a sovereign God who sits on the throne of history and of eternity. He has a plan and he will work out his plan. Right, number, number five, resurrection. Piling on the blessings, more grace, and here's the grace of resurrection. Have you noticed that people today don't die, they pass? You notice that? You watch the, uh, uh, some of the tele- television shows and uh, watch the repair shop. Nobody ever dies in the repair shop, they just pass. Uh, and we like to avoid the word die, we like to avoid the word death, and so we say people pass. Well, here's another one. We say this as Christians. If anything happens to me, or something will happen to you, you will die. All right? <laughs> and then when people do die, in our culture, we like to hide the dead body away so that it isn't seen. We, we, we hide it. And then we sing, at least we don't, but uh, the world sings, I did it my way. Well, you did do it what, your way, but it's over now. It's gone. You're dead. All right? And then you get this superstitious thing where you promote them. They don't, you know, non-religious people will do this. They say, well, they're like a star in heaven. They're, they're, they're an angel in the sky. Oh, please, you know, you get... I mean, that's the, that's the way that our, our culture and society handles death. Now, I want to say this to you, friends, and I'm serious here. When I die, don't hide me away. Stick my coffin at the front of the church building. I want to be a visible reminder that we all end up in a six-foot box, or Phil may be six-foot-six, but we all end up up in a six-foot box. We've got to die. People need to to realize that. You can't hide it away. It's a fact of life. But I also want to give out this message. My body is in a state of grace. For what happens when I die? That's the question so often asked me. And yes, there's this intermediate state where our spirit is released from the body and we're consciously with Christ. But the biblical emphasis is this, that when Christ comes again, there's going to be a resurrection of every saint that has ever lived throughout all of history. And from the atoms that are left over, where I've been cremated or buried for a thousand years, from the atoms that are left over, God will do a miracle of resurrection and we will stand again upon the earth. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, verses 42 to 45. Let me just remind you of these famous, wonderful verses where the Apostle Paul, in the longest stretch of writing on the resurrection, says this, So it will be with the resurrection of the the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, we're like one another, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man who is Jesus Christ. 
And so here's my exhortation specifically on this, and it's an exhortation that comes from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. My friends, we're not ordinary people here. We're born-again people. We have resurrection power at work within us. We're going to live beyond the grave. Our bodies are going to be raised up. Get hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Changes everything. In a sense, what does this life matter? It's not that it doesn't matter at all. Of course it does. And we invest our time here. But there's nothing compared with what is going to come. We can actually get delivered from popular or even popular evangelical theology sometimes on the afterlife, as though we're going to be on a fluffy cloud with a guitar on an endless bank holiday Monday. It's not going to be like that. Death is strength. We're buried in weakness but raised in power. And the creation will be purged by fire as it was once purged by water and it will be regenerated as new. And I don't know why there's still so many people in local churches that don't get this. We're in the fluffy cloud up there, out there syndrome so often. If you're still thinking vaguely about what happens when you die, for goodness sake, listen up, not to me, but to the Bible. Your body will be raised. The earth will be regenerated. You will live looking like the risen Christ upon the earth which will be restored to absolute perfection. Get hold of your eternal life. The most certain thing about being alive is that you won't be. That's why the Bible said, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. It's why Paul says that for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's why 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is dissolved, we have a building from God, a made in heavens, not with human hands. We know these things. So take hold of this grace of eternal life. And the fifth, our sixth and final blessing is hope. That's the final blessing I want to pile on. Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. My friends, don't you think we're living in a scary world? If you don't, I don't think you're thinking. I mean, we've got to be, we're Christians, we've got to be real about what's going on around us. You know, Russia-Ukraine conflict, where does that end? I'm not confident that Russia is just one day going to say we're beaten and go back to Russia and it's all over. Are we really confident that's what Russia's going to do? You think it's really going to end like that? I'm not saying it absolutely can't. I'm really not saying it absolutely can't, but it seems pretty unlikely to me. We could be at the beginning of this, not at the end of it. And then there's China and Taiwan. Is America going to take on China when China does invade Taiwan, which seems almost certain will one day happen? What about North Korea? It's building its missiles so that very soon, if not already, they'll be able to take a nuclear weapon to America. You think of the crackpot that's leading North Korea? And when it comes to Israel, without getting into all the stuff that you can say about Israel, think about Israel and Iran and the danger that poses for the Middle East and for the world. And that's just the tip of a pretty unpleasant iceberg, I can tell you. And when it comes to economic structures, all the time economic structures around the world are shaking. 
We're confident that capitalism is just going to survive wonderfully as it has done for a good number of years now, not go like communism or other systems that have somehow in the end collapsed. We're going to put all our trust there. And think about government's instability. We're now living in a world where more than 50% of the world, because you can now count in India as well, are living under autocratic governments, not democratic governments. And that's the way the world is going. It has the spirit of Antichrist about it. I can't go into that. I just haven't got time here this morning. Now, you can say, oh, it's all been very alarmist and negative, John, but Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, everybody doing their thing, and it's all normal, and then the Son of Man comes. And we need to think realistically about this, and even more so because, my friends, we have a blessing. It's another blessing that's part of all the other blessings. It's the blessing of hope. As Paul writes in Titus 2.13, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing and glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And whatever happens at the very end of history, and I have some idea of how things are going, but I'm not somebody who can tell you that I know it's exactly going to be like this. But however history concludes in precise detail, this we know from the Word of God, with absolute authority, therefore, that there will come a day when God say, that's it, it is done, the heavens will open, the risen Christ will appear in glory, the saints will be raised, the creation will be regenerated, we will be with the King forever. That is the hope that we have in the face of all that's taking place in the world around us at the present time. And so this is it. It's blessing upon blessing. It's grace upon grace. You and I have got revelation which can motivate our discipleship away from distraction. Friends, we've got life. Here we are to worship God. Let's revel in it. We have the truth and the truth holds everything together for us. As Paul says, it's like a belt. It's a belt of truth. And everything in life, in the world, and even in our personal lives makes sense when we're in Christ and we have this belt of truth. We have the blessing of the sovereignty of God, that God is on the throne whatever. We've got resurrection. Friends, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. And on top of that, we have a blessed hope, which means that in the end and in eternity, it will be all right. Beyond any technique or any program that any church may put forward to try and multiply its numbers, I believe that if a church grasps grace upon grace, multiply blessings, we can be a church that multiplies our numbers. Let's stand together, come in. <laughs> Father, I want to pray that uh, this weekend you'll draw us deeper into you. Lord, I thank you that for us who are in Christ, we're in such a privileged position, Lord. Help us to recognize that. The world's sick. The world's confused. The world's all over the place. The world's confessing things that aren't true. Father, I thank you that you've brought us into Christ and changed everything for us. I thank you for revelation. Give us more, Lord. Increase our knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given us life. Thank you that we've got the truth to hold everything together. Thank you that you're the sovereign God seated upon the throne of history and 
of eternity. Thank you that we're going to be raised in our bodies to live forever upon this regenerated earth. And thank you that we have a hope that one day, maybe it will be soon, as the church has prayed for 2,000 years, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We thank you for grace upon grace and blessing upon blessing. Amen.